Hey there, welcome to night school. It's just Batty and I here on a Friday night, as usual, as usual, just Batty and I. And, uh, you know, the reason I'm doing an episode, though, is because if I, if I weren't talking right now, I'd be checking. I'd be doing, all, I'd be doing a bunch of check-in. I'd be refreshing pages, doing all that checking that we all do. And I'm really good about that kind of thing. I feel that I have a healthy relationship to checking. Gotta check. But right now, you know, I'm not above this whole electile dysfunction thing. I feel that I've done a good job at simply being an observer the last few days. But I'm not above paying attention to it. Why would I be? How would I be? Even though I made a point of not being emotionally invested in the outcome, I am invested in it. I do have a preferred outcome. And I'm not going to get into the details because this show really isn't about that. But, uh, you know, I, I'm finding myself in my downtime. I'm being productive. I'm being very productive. I'm doing the things that I want to do, that I need to do. But in my downtime, I am checking a little more often than I'd like. So in order to stop myself from checking, I'm talking. But, you know, as I've said before, it's like I'm, I'm very much against this whole, like, oh, put when you come to my house, put your phone in the phone drawer. Oh, when my friends come over, I make them put their phones in my phone drawer so they don't check them. Because I like my friends to give me all their attention. Oh, when you... Me and my friends, we have this awesome thing we do when we eat dinner together where we, uh... We stack all our phones in the center of the table like a Jingo game. It's like we're playing Jingo. Strange noises out in the world. Sounded like a... That was interesting. Anyway. Jing... You mean Jinga? No, Jingo. We're, pl- we're playing Jinga. Playing Jingo. Whatever that joke was. I got distracted. Uh, but yeah, there's that whole idea of like, we're going to deliberately stack our phones in the center of the table so that we can have each other's attention while we eat dinner and not check. We're not going to do any of that checking. I feel like that's castrating yourself, though. That's just having no self-control. I feel like if you're stacking your phones in the center of the table, I mean, I made up the phone drawer. That's my own invention. Maybe that's my million dollar idea is the phone drawer. It's just like any other drawer, but you call it the phone drawer, and you make people put their phones in it. Uh, But, you know, that's just castrating yourself. That's like being like, I can't control my impulses, so I'm going to do this performative, annoying thing where I I can't even look at my phone. Meanwhile, you're going to be thinking more about it if you do that. Just have a little restraint. Have a little discipline and keep it in your pocket and don't look at it. I don't know, maybe maybe it's harder for some people. Maybe those are my audience. Those are my demographic that I'm going to target when I invent the phone drawer. But me personally, I feel like I generally have a pretty healthy relationship with the great checking that we all do. Where I do it, I do it regularly, but I don't feel like it controls me. I don't feel like it's I, I don't feel like I'm out of control and that I have to do it all the time. But I have felt in my downtime the last few days, there's not really that much that's of interest to me right now. So I'm just, I'm looking. I'm looking. And so in a way, this show is actually my phone drawer. That's the name of my new podcast, The Phone Drawer. No, in some ways, this show is kind of, it's my phone drawer. The only reason I'm doing an episode right now is so that I don't check the internet or check my phone. But I, I don't know. It's all right. It's all, I feel good about everything. I feel completely fine about everything. Where, you know, I I don't know. I'm pretty much ready for anything. And I say that without any hubris or overconfidence. You know, I don't want bad things to happen. And it's hard for me not to visualize bad things happening right now. Because, I mean, the thing about political extremism is... Nobody's content. Political extremists are never content because a political extremist, their their entire goal is to take absolute control. 
they have developed such a narrow view of the world that all they want is to have complete control. And as a result, they're never content because you can never get complete control. You just can't. There's no way to gain complete control. And since that's pretty much your goal when you become a political extremist, you're never going to be content. It doesn't matter if you win elections. It doesn't matter if you win erections. It doesn't make a difference because you're never going to get what you want because what you want is outside of human possibility. In the same way that you can never control your own life completely, you're always going to be at the mercy of nature, at the mercy of some things that are outside of your control, which is why you should try to have as much control as you can, but not be unrealistic about it. But I do feel that political extremism brings out this desire to have absolute control. And uh, I don't know, but, you know, so I'm seeing that, you know, I'm seeing that from people. But I feel okay, you know, even though I think things could get very bad. Even though I think that this could peak in a horrific way, I think some of the disagreements, some of the animosity. I think the animosity could peak in a way that is actually more horrifying than anything we imagined happening in our lifetimes. I'm trying not to visualize that. I'm trying not to will that to happen. Not that I'm responsible. But of course, the more people that will that to happen, the more likely it will happen. And I'm trying not to participate in that. But I do feel as ready as I possibly could. You know, I, I do feel that I am, you know, I would say physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually prepared for whatever comes next. You know, and I mean, I would love to have a little more security. I would love to be in a better position in life. I would love to have a million dollars tucked behind my ear, and I'd love to have a, a blonde with a, a pair of, a pair of DDs sitting on my lap I'd love it if a, a blonde with a pair of DDs stuck a million dollars behind my ear and sat down on my lap I'd love it but as far as trade-offs go I would prefer that security that strength I would much prefer that you know, not that I, not that I wouldn't, uh, not that I wouldn't take the million dollars in the blonde with the DDs. You know, not that I wouldn't take that. But as far as that trade-off goes, I think it's better to have the former set of qualities in your life. But I'm not overconfident about those because you know, in order to know if you have those, they have to be tested. And while I do feel that I've been tested in certain ways in my life in recent years, the last year uh, specifically. You know, you'll you will continue to be tested, but it's good to go into that feeling good. It's good to go into that feeling good because you can carry that with you. That's momentum, and you're better with off with momentum than not having any. But yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, I, I'm not going to comment on specifics because I want to keep my observational post here. I want to keep the vantage point that I'm at. I don't want to crawl down quite yet. I don't want to climb down the ladder quite yet. But, uh, you know, I am... At some point, you got to. At some point, you do got to climb down the ladder from your vantage point. Stick your hands in the mud. But I'm not going to do that quite yet. But, uh, you know, I was thinking about... Being a scavenger, you know, I've mentioned on here before the idea of being a scavenger. A scavenger in the endless pursuit of jewels, always looking for another jewel. But that idea of scavenging, and you think about a scavenger hunt, you know, you, you play scavenger hunts, you do scavenger hunts, usually growing up, and that's something I did take for granted. Because I can probably count on one hand the number of scavenger hunts, organized scavenger hunts that I've done in my life. Something you might have done in school or at a birthday party where you get this list and it's like, find a, a red car. Find a red car with the tail light out. I don't know why this is all about cars. 
It's a car scavenger hunt. Find a stop sign with graffiti on it. I feel like that's still car related. I don't know why my idea for a scavenger hunt is all about cars. I knew you'd lose your mind eventually, but I didn't know it would be all about cars. I didn't know that you were going to lose your mind in some kind of car obsession. It's especially weird because I'm not into cars. Cars are not a hobby of mine. I don't know how to work on cars. I'm not into racing cars. I don't know what... I don't even know what a car is. So it would be really strange if I lost my mind thinking about cars. But anyway, scavenger hunts, you know, it'd be a list of things. You know, find a, a toothbrush in a gutter. So you check off that on the list. And actually, I have done a couple as an adult. A job I had, we did as a team building activity, we did a scavenger hunt couple times at the same job we did a couple different scavenger hunts and it was fun but you know it's hard to do I mean I'm fortunately I've never had to organize a scavenger hunt myself because you have to come up with things that you could realistically find but they also have to be interesting in some way they have to be things that you could conceivably find in whatever situation you're in in the place you're at but you also have to make them interesting somehow and they can't be entirely unrealistic, but they can't be too mundane either. Like, it can't be like, find a sidewalk. Find a blonde with a pair of DDs. Find a million dollars stuck behind your ear. You know, you can't get too far out there with it. But thinking about that idea of scavenging and, like, considering myself a scavenger in life... And it's not that I, I'm out there looking for specific things. I don't necessarily know the things that I'm looking for in life. But you know it when you see it. So it's not that I'm working from some kind of list. Like, oh, these are the things that I'm trying to find. These are the things that I'm trying to find. It's not like that at all. But you know it when you see it. It stands out to you in some way. And I'm pretty specific about that kind of thing. Like, it is, I do take a I know it when I see it sort of approach. I mean, to people as well as things. You know, if, if I don't necessarily know the kind of person that I'm going to want to be friends with, but I know it when I meet them or even sometimes when I see them. Because sometimes people stand out to you. Sometimes people just, you don't know them yet, but you just, you kind of know. You're like, oh, I'm, I'm probably going to be friends with this person. I don't know what that is. Souls travel in packs. Your souls have traveled in a pack for several lifetimes, and you just recognize them when you see them. I'm not against that idea. I I, I kind of believe that in my own way. Uh, but, uh, you know, it happens with objects, too. Like, you can't quite explain why a particular object is of significance to you. Because sometimes an object becomes almost sacred to me, and there's no real backstory to it. And it could be something that somebody has given me. Like, somebody might have given you a rock. Here's a rock. And it might not even be somebody who was important to you. But it, it seems like it has some kind of significance. And it's not that people are giving me rocks all the time. I'm the rock guy. Everybody knows to give me rocks. But it could be something like that. It could be something a little out of the ordinary, but also mundane, with no real significance to the backstory, but yet it seems to take on some importance to you. It's almost like it's outlined in some way. People are like that as well. That's what I mean when you see somebody and they stand out to you in some way and you think, oh, I'm going to be friends with that person. And it's different than, you know, seeing a girl or something being like, oh, you know, I'm attracted to her. I'm drawn to her. Although it can, there is an intangible force to that, too, where it's not just attraction. It's also they stand out in some odd way. I've mentioned before that feeling of, oh, no, where you just, there's this sense of familiarity to somebody. A dark familiarity sometimes, but... um yeah, I don't know. Some people, they're just illuminated almost. And, you know, it's like Miles has always used the example. As long as I've known him, I remember having a conversation with him uh, when we when I first met him. And he, he used the example of, 
in cartoons, the boulder that's going to fall is animated differently, or rather it's outlined differently because it's not part of the background. Say a character in a cartoon is walking by a bunch of, he's walking by a bunch of rocks. Speaking of rocks, he's walking by a bunch of rocks and a giant hand comes down from the sky and says, here's a rock. No, but like, so let's say it's like Wiley e. Coyote or something. He's like walking by boulders and the boulders are part of the background. He's in a canyon, let's say. And the boulder that's going to fall, though, is a slightly different color. It looks a little bit different. And that's because it's animated to fall. And I don't feel like I'm teaching anybody anything when I explain this. I mean, it's probably pretty obvious to anybody who's watched cartoons, especially old cartoons, where the background was often a matte painting or just different in some way. The background was a static image and the things that were animated and moving are cells. They're on top of the background. And so even though there are rocks in the background and the boulder that's going to fall is supposed to be part of those rocks, because it's going to fall, it's not actually part of the background. So it's outlined differently. And for whatever reason, they couldn't match the color. Just the fact that it's an animated part of what you're seeing just makes it look different. And so... As well, and when you're a really little kid, you don't notice that. You're not paying attention to random objects that are supposed to be part of the background. You're watching the characters. You're watching the action. You're distracted by that. But as you get a little bit older, you notice, oh, hey, that thing, they just walked into a new scene, and there's something in the background that looks different. And you just figure out one day, oh, that's going to be the thing that falls. That's going to be the thing that moves. I mean, I had my own moment with this. When I was a kid, I was watching a show about kids, and they were at school and walking through the locker bay, cartoon where they were walking through the locker bay at school. And suddenly I noticed that one of the doors to a locker was a different color green, and it had kind of a bold outline around it. And I was like, oh, they're going to open that locker. And sure enough, they did. And this this should all be pretty obvious to somebody who's not mentally impaired. You know, I don't feel like I'm. this is some profound idea where I'm like, did you know that the, the locker door is, is going to open if it looks different? You know, I feel that this is something that most little kids become aware of. But I, I remember Miles bringing it up because it's not something you think of after the fact. You don't think of this as you go through life. And you certainly don't think of things that you encounter in real life being that way because you're not living in a cartoon. Of course you're not. But still, there are certain things that stand out to you almost in that same way. And it's almost like, this is something that I have to interact with. This is something that is going to have some kind of importance to me. It's illuminated in some way. It's almost like it looks slightly different. And you wouldn't be able to measure this. You know, The scientists, they haven't gotten this far yet. Scientists haven't studied the correlation between background objects in cartoons and objects of importance in your day-to-day life. They just haven't figured it out yet. And they'll call what... Scientists will tell you that what I'm saying right now is pseudoscience, but it is so real they can't comprehend it. This is why you should always listen to the experts, and in this case, I'm certainly an expert in what I'm talking about right now. Um, But, uh... Yeah, certain things are just illuminated differently. And as I was saying, you know, being a scavenger, being somebody who I consider myself a scavenger, and it's not that I'm just randomly choosing things to pay attention to or things that I attach some significance toward. A lot of it's involuntary, but it does feel like the list is writing itself before your very eyes. The list of scavenger items to find is being created before your very eyes. You're, it's not... It sure doesn't seem predetermined, but yet you know it when you see it. Just like you would see that boulder that's going to fall and know it when you see it. The locker that's going to open in the cartoon locker bay. A cartoon locker. (laughs) Just like that, though, it seems to just stand out. 
And I think that's a good approach to take toward life is to see yourself as a, as a scavenger, but not a scavenger who has some pre-written list of things that you want to find. You know, it's good to have some kind of idea. That's where having values comes in handy. I mean, it's not wrong to have goals, but when it comes to things for you to interact with, scavenger mindset, but with a list that is always evolving in real time, I think that's a good approach to take. And not that there's anything wrong with I don't know, because, I mean, there's some people, like, because, I mean, you go to a thrift store, and I feel like a thrift store, especially when thrift stores were still good, not that you can't still find some things, but back when thrift stores used to have a lot more secret treasures before eBay, before all of that, before it became an industry to go through thrift stores and resell things online, before, before information about collectibles was as widely available. You know, a lot of things feed into the decline of thrift stores, and I'm still glad they exist, but it's just that people have a lot more info on what's collectible, what you can resell for money, and so they're able to go there with that in mind. But you did used to be able to find a lot more hidden treasures at thrift stores, and sometimes it was that same sort of feeling where it's like you just see something and you know there's some significance to it. It might not even be something that you are aware of. You might have no knowledge of this thing. And records are an obvious example. And I never really found many good records at thrift stores. I have friends who have, though. You know, I have friends who managed to find some pretty amazing things. But if you're really naive, and I don't say that condescendingly, but if you're really naive, you can go to a thrift store and, and still find a million things that seem special to you. I mean, there's some people who are so high, they're so buzzed on the experience of going to a thrift store that they can go and pick up like a, you know, like a Barry Manilow record and, and just be like, oh my God, they have a Barry Manilow record. Oh, they they have a mass-produced Tchaikovsky record. Dude, I went to the thrift store and they had they had a Beethoven record. Can you believe it? And that's exciting. You know, that's fun. It's fun when someone can just enjoy anything. Unfortunately, I'm not one of those people, uh, but it's fun when someone can just go and be like, oh man, they have a Garfield mug. They have a Garfield mug. Something that you'll find at literally every thrift store. You know, they'll probably have 10 of those, probably have 10 Garfield mugs. A hundred of these classical music records. A hundred Beethoven records, you know, but then there's somebody, though, who will go there and they're so buzzed just on the experience of going to a thrift store that their checklist is just infinite. Pretty much anything you could find there is exciting. And that's great. You know, I think that person will probably get a lot more out of life than other people because they're they're truly open minded. They're just like, man, can you believe this? It's the same sort of person who's just just the experience of going to the movies. It's just like, man, it's a it's a movie, dude. Dude, it, I'm just excited. I get they're into the experience of getting popcorn. Doesn't matter how good the movie is. Simply the act of going to the movies. They're into the experience. And some people are that way, and those people it's good to know those people. Cuz that can rub off on you. Not that you will become that. Because me personally, I would rather be discerning. I would rather be discriminate. Because I enjoy that. I get something out of finding special things. But it's good to also have the ability to enjoy anything. It's good just to enjoy the experience of going to a thrift store and not worrying about finding something super unique or rare. Just like it's fun to go to the movies and just be like, yeah, I'm seeing a shitty movie. And I'm eating popcorn. You know, I think that there's something to be said for being able to do that. But it's just, it's not who I am on the whole. And it's okay when you lose, because that's the thing too, is if you do have a scavenger mindset, 
you're competitive by nature. Like you do kind of operate from this place of, oh, somebody else is going to get that special thing. Somebody else is going to uh, open that. <laughs> somebody else is going to open my locker, my, my cartoon locker. Somebody else is going to open it. But that's part of the fun of it. That's also part of the fun of it is the fact that it's like you want to find it. You're a treasure hunter. And if it's a valuable treasure, that means other people are after it too. And it's not materialistic. It's not greedy. It's just kind of the joy of the hunt. And I would say I'm less that way when it comes to collecting things. I would say that I'm less that way when it comes to collecting, but I'm more that way when it comes to experiences, where I want experiences and interactions to have some sort of special significance. And you can't force that. I mean, it's almost like ritual, where there are so many casual rituals happening all around you and to you at any given time, and most of the time you don't even notice them. And you don't necessarily need to. And often it's better not to. Often it actually takes away from the magic of a mundane ritual to put too much emphasis on it. It almost breaks the spell if you even acknowledge it sometimes. Not that I worry about that. Because this kind of reminds me of people taking photos of things. Where there's an attitude, as photos have become easier to take, as we have photo phones in our pockets and we can just pull them out and we don't have to develop them on film. They're even more disposable because we can delete them if we take too many. We can take as many as we want at any given time. And there's an attitude that's developed in response to that, which is that you shouldn't do that. It takes you out of the moment. Taking photos of an event takes you out of the moment and you're just, you're worried about you want to see pictures of this moment later to the extent that you're not even enjoying the moment. And I understand that way of thinking. And I try to keep that in mind sometimes. Like, I don't want to be constantly taking photos of things. But I think sometimes you can be more in the moment with a phone taking photos of things. Sometimes that is actually what puts you more in that moment. And you're not taking it for granted because you realize it is something that you want to look back on. And in talking about rituals, there's this idea, too, that somehow, I don't know, somehow like adding some sort of, I'm trying to think of the right words here. Let's just stick with photos. <laughs> I'm trying to think of the words here. Photos. But with that idea of photos, you know, imagine if you were participating in some sort of magic ritual some sort of spiritual, religious ritual, and someone is filming it with their phone. They're videoing it with their phone. There's no film in a phone. Film phone. But somebody's holding it up. Somebody's live-streaming a ritual. Does that somehow negate the ritual? I mean, maybe some. Maybe some form of ritual should be closed off. But I do wonder, you know... Is a ritual so weak, is it susceptible to that kind of... Can it be corrupted that easily? If something is some sort of ritual, some sort of magical event, can it be disrupted so easily that somebody simply taking a photo of it will will ruin it? And I guess that's where I'm very unorthodox, where for me... I put a lot less emphasis on the the decoration of a ritual. And, you know, you think about, like, you even hear the words ritual, and what do you imagine? Sacred objects, candles, robes, beads, a banner behind you, a banner behind an altar with symbols on it. And that puts people in a certain mode. I think that does... I think that does put people in a certain place where a ritual can have some sort of power to them and over them. And they want that sort of decoration. They want that sort of theater. Because calling it theatrical doesn't make it less important 
or make it any less powerful. But personally, like talking about the idea of casual rituals, small things that have a lot of power, but you might not recognize them as rituals. You know that there's some significance to them, maybe, but you don't even need to acknowledge that. And in fact, it might make them more powerful not to acknowledge that. And it might just be the most mundane aspects of your life. I feel like that's sort of a Taoism idea. You know, doing things. I mean, the example that, you know, Taoists always use is washing the dishes, doing the most mundane, imaginable events, but with a certain deliberateness, deliberation. And in doing that, you turn it into a little ritual. But is that, is thinking of washing the dishes as a ritual somehow, is that somehow more magical? Is that somehow more spiritual than somebody who doesn't think of it as a ritual, but still puts all of themselves into the act of washing dishes, ditches, digging ditches, wash, washing dishes, digging ditches. Sorry. You know, sometimes it just, sometimes you just go, sometimes your mind just goes. That was a ritual. What I just said there, those were magic words. Those were magic words. Digging ditches and washing dishes. (laughs) You just participated in a ritual. And those were the sacred words. But yeah, somebody who's who's washing dishes, I can't I can't even say dishes anymore. I just say ditches washing ditches. But yeah, somebody who's doing that doing that thing, I can't say anymore. And who's sitting there thinking, oh, it's just like that teacher told me. Washing dishes can be a magical ritual. Are they actually cultivating more of that deliberate energy than somebody who is doing the same exact thing, who's equally invested in the process, but isn't thinking of it as some sort of extra supernatural sort of, I don't know, whatever it is. You know, is that, I almost feel like that's more potent. And that's what I mean about not necessarily acknowledging the casual little rituals of life. Doing them with a certain flow, doing them with a certain deliberation, but not dressing them up any more than they need to be. Not doing any more than simply what needs to be done. Just something to consider. And and with that, too, you know, think about like decoration, like somebody who needs things to be decorated. And the example that I always think of is graduation. You think about your school graduation. And I would ask somebody, do you need to go to a graduation ceremony in order to graduate? And the answer is no. I mean, I didn't. I didn't go to my high school graduation. I didn't go to my college graduation. I went to my elementary school graduation. I went to my junior high graduation. Does that mean that I only graduated from elementary school and junior high? Yes. No. But uh, of course not. Uh, Of course it doesn't. I graduated high school and college as well. I got my diploma from both. Does that mean, though, that those were somehow less important? Does that mean that something was missing? And, And I guess on the opposite end, does that also mean that people who did go to their graduation wasted their time like because i got the same result meaning i got my diploma i'm no longer in college i'm no longer in high school i got my diploma but i didn't go to my graduation ceremony does that somehow mean that everybody who did go to the ceremony just wasted their time of course not that is important to people because it is a ceremony it is a ritual it is decorative And some people need that. Some people need that formal separation. For some people, they would feel some kind of dissonance if they didn't have some sort of ceremonial separation between the previous moment and the future moment. So they would never truly feel like they left high school if they didn't have a graduation ceremony. The paper, the diploma, the fact that they graduated, 
wouldn't quite have the weight that they would want it to have without some sort of a ritual. Because you think about a graduation ceremony, and that's incredibly ritualistic. It's incredibly spiritual, for that matter. The idea that you're waiting, you're sitting there waiting, and they're talking about the future. They're basically repeating platitudes about the past and the future and potential and all of these things. And then they're asking you to come up one by one and shake hands with your teachers and your administrators. And then after that moment, you feel this official shift in your life. And I never went through that. And maybe that's why I'm doing a freaking podcast that's named after school. Maybe I should have gone to my graduation. Maybe I maybe at my I think I'm mentally still in high school because I didn't go to my graduation and now I'm doing a, a freaking show about school. I can't stop talking about growing up and school and uh, That's the monster. That's the monster coming out. The school monster. <laughs> because I never went to my graduation ceremonies, I never went to my high school graduation ceremony, it created this school monster in me. And it manifested in the form of this podcast and these voices and these memories and these stories I can't quite escape. See, that's what happens. That's all you need to tell kids. Because I remember getting a little bit of pushback from people. There were family members and people. My sister didn't go to her uh, graduations either, it turned out. And I wasn't just following her. Like my family, just we're just not those kind of people. I don't think we need the ritual as much as other people do. I mean, even look at my mom where, you know, when she died, she had told me way in advance that she did not want a funeral. And that's a ritual, you know, an obvious one. That's a death ritual. And uh, a lot of people need that, though. You know, because in some weird way, it doesn't feel like somebody dies if there isn't some sort of ceremony to acknowledge it. And when my mom passed, it was like she was here one day and now she's gone. You know, it really was that quick. And people asked me if there was going to be a funeral, if there was going to be some kind of ceremony. And I was just like, no. You know, and this was a few months before Coronavi. Uh, this is, this is uh, a few months before we got marooned on Coronavi-land. And so it really had nothing to do with that. It was just purely her expressing to me for many years, since I was a little kid, before I was even ready to deal with the reality that my mom would eventually die, she made it clear to me that she did not want a ceremony. She did not want a funeral. You know, eventually my family is going to spread her ashes, and that will be a ritual. Although a very material ritual, because, I mean, we're going to be spreading her ashes, her last material form, what remains of her material form, we're going to do something with that. But even just needing to do that is obviously very ritualistic. It's a ceremony unto itself. But we need ceremonies, we need rituals, and especially when there's a change. Human beings have ritual and ceremony. When there is a change, and doing that ritual acknowledges that change. You think about a lot of seasonal rituals. You think about paganism, you think about, you know, the solstice. People have their own little rituals for those, and those are to signify a change. They're to acknowledge a change. And some people feel very disrupted when there is a change that is happening no matter what. Because, I mean, it's like with graduation. Just because I didn't participate in the ceremony doesn't mean that I didn't graduate. I went about my life, and even though it turned me into a school monster, even though not going to my graduation ceremony turned me into a monster who can't stop thinking about school, I still graduated. My mom didn't have a funeral. She still passed away. So, you know, you don't need to formalize it for the thing to happen. The solstice still happens. The season changes regardless of what you do. And just because I'm not geared toward ritual in the same way, 
just because I'm not geared towards ceremony in the same way, although I am. The thing, that's the thing, too, I have to say, is that I do occasionally have little rituals that I will do because I am superstitious, so there are little kind of mundane, daily superstitious things I do. But very rarely do I get into the sort of candle lighting, you know, mood sort of traditional rituals. I will do them sometimes. But it's it goes back to the scavenger thing where I just know when that feels right. I know when an opportunity presents itself to have a much more concrete ritual, and I do it then. But it's not something that I schedule. It's not something that I feel that I have to do in order to achieve a certain result. I think it'll reinforce that because that's what a lot of these rituals are. It's not that going to your your high school graduation ceremony causes you to graduate, but it reinforces the reality of that, and it allows you to go on to the next phase. It's not that the season won't change if you don't do some sort of solstice celebration. It's that it reinforces the change. It, it changes something in you. It's about changing your own feeling about the situation. It's changing your disposition. And that's an important way of thinking of any ritual, any ceremony, is you're ultimately changing the disposition of the participants. But it's not changing the actual fact of something that's happening to those participants, especially if it, if it is something larger like a graduation, like a death. And my uncle, he told me that, you know, both of his parents, my grandparents passed away in the last, I guess, five years. And uh, he referred to their deaths as graduation. And I I like that, actually. I think that's a a good way of thinking of it. Uh, So, I mean, it's, there's an obvious correlation there. Graduating is a form of death. Not to get, this sounds very pseudo profound, but it's like, when you graduate high school, you're a, a, a part of you is dying. The high schooler that you were is dead. <laughs> when you graduate high school, you killed the high schooler. No, but there is an obvious correlation between graduation and death, and it's not surprising that both of those events are some of the main rituals that we participate in. I mean, there's not a lot of ceremonies that your average citizen goes through throughout their life. But you go to funerals, you go to graduations, I mean, weddings are another, because they signify the start of something as well, of course. It's not just an end. A lot of rituals are the end of one thing and the start of another. That's the seasonal change. That's what graduation is. That's what a wedding is. Bye-bye, double DD blondes. Guess I'm saying bye to all them DD, those DD blondes. And I'm saying hello, wife. You know, that's what you're, when you get married, that's what you're saying. Bye bye, million dollars. Bye bye, DD, double DD blondes, you know. Um, the death of a bachelor. That's what a wedding is. The death of a high schooler, the death of a bachelor. But, you know, there are many more casual little rituals that you will participate in. I mean, even just what you do before bed. I mean, I don't want to get ultra mundane and say brushing your teeth or taking a shower, although maybe, sure. Of course, those are rituals. I mean, you can really start to see everything as a ritual, which really is what I'm getting at. When I say some rituals are so casual, most rituals are so casual that you won't even acknowledge them happening, whether you're participating in them or whether they're happening all around you. And you don't necessarily need to. And maybe it's better that you don't. Maybe it's better that you don't break your concentration. Maybe it's better that you just stay in that moment and do that thing. When you brush your teeth, maybe it's better that you just think, I'm brushing my teeth. I just want to make sure I do a good job brushing my teeth rather than thinking this is part of the good night ritual and it's the death of one day and the birth of another day when I wake up. You know, maybe it's better just to think, hey, I'm taking care of my teeth. But you wouldn't be wrong to recognize that 
it's also a little, it's something more too. And you can really annoy people with that idea. You can really annoy people if you place all of this extra significance on mundane events. So that's one reason not to do it. <laughs> but that doesn't make it any less ritualistic. That doesn't make it any less ceremonial. And sometimes you have to de detach yourself to even see things that way. And sometimes that can be what helps give your life some extra meaning, too. It can be what gives your life meaning at all, is to start to understand that you are participating in an endlessly unfolding ritual. And all of the little things you repeat, all of the little decisions you make, all of the things you notice are some form of participation in that greater unfolding ritual. And that's one of those things that you want to learn and then forget. It's like meditating so that you don't have to meditate. You know, it's one of those things that you want to you want to be aware enough of it. It's like you have to be aware of it in order to recognize it and see that as a valuable epiphany or realization. But then you want to forget it because thinking about everything in that in those terms actually disconnects you in some way. And that's just sort of the that's sort of what we do constantly. You know, battling between being aware of something and then trying to distance distance yourself from that awareness so that you can actually live life. Being aware, being self-aware and then distancing yourself from that self-awareness so that you can simply be a participant so that you can be part of the glow. It's like you can notice the glow you can be like, oh, I realize there is something glowing about life. I can feel it. I can feel that there is something glowing. And I can almost see it. I have like, It's almost like I can visualize that everything that is alive has this interconnected glow. But you have to stop thinking about that in order to be part of that glow. Or at least to be part of it in some sort of harmonious way. To be a participant in that glowing phenomenon that is life. You know, it's like you have to recognize it, but then shut that away. I mean, it's like looking at a magic eye picture. You know, where it's like you have to disconnect yourself in order to actually see it. And I always struggle with those. I'm, I'm terrible at seeing the hidden image in those magic eye pictures. But it's a similar sort of idea where you have to know what you're doing. You have to know that there is a hidden image in that magic eye picture. You have to know that there's a hidden image in order to look at it and, and figure out that there's a hidden image. But you have to unfocus yourself in order to actually see it. And you can't be thinking too hard about it in order to see the hidden image. So it's the exact same thing that I'm talking about here, where it's like you, you have to acknowledge that you are looking at this thing in order, in order to recognize that it even has this quality, that it's even possible to see it that way. But then in, in order to actually participate in it, you have to unfocus yourself, and you can't be thinking too hard about it. And I feel the same way about the little rituals of your day-to-day -day life. You know, in order to get that extra meaning out of something, you have to then unfocus and stop thinking about that extra meaning and simply do it. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> yep. You know, that's just one of the things. The, it's one of the things that you can consider, but listen to this and then forget everything I said. Uh, that, that should be, that's what you should do with every episode that I do. Listen and then forget about it. Listen to what I say, then forget everything I say. And that kind of fits into the idea of embedding certain thoughts into your subconscious, because that's what you're doing with that. 
when you repeat certain goals or ideas or values, when you try to manifest something in your life, or when you want your life itself to manifest a certain way, you want to embed certain targets into your subconscious, certain things that you want to happen, things that you want to become. And in doing that, you no longer have to think hard about them anymore. Because they become a part of your subconscious, they become a part of what you do, and you orient yourself toward those things. And as a result, you no longer have to sit there and think, today I'm going to try to get a million dollars and find a blonde with a pair of DDs who wants to sit on my lap. You don't have to wake up every day and, and say that to yourself. You don't have to wake up every day and write that down on a piece of paper. You don't have to make a scavenger hunt list with two items on it every day. A million dollars, blonde with DDs sitting on my lap. You don't have to do that every day because you've embedded that in your subconscious. And so in that way, your subconscious is very much like a scavenger hunt list, but it's not one that you have to continually check because your subconscious has just absorbed it. Your subconscious just knows it. And I could get into whether or not your subconscious produces those thoughts in your head to begin with. And in that way, maybe you're just returning those thoughts back to your subconscious when you decide that those are goals. You know, that's easy, that very well could be the case. But that's getting pretty out there. You know, do those thoughts... Ar- did they originally come from your subconscious and then they enter your intellect and then your intellect has to push them back into the place that they originally came from in order for those to manifest? It's possible. Sure. But you don't want to spend too much time thinking about that. You don't want to spend too much time thinking about that. Um, but I, I do think you should think about that scavenger hunt list and figure that, yeah, you know... When something enters your subconscious, when something becomes embedded in your subconscious, it is like having a scavenger hunt list that is simply a part of you, and you don't have to check it, you don't have to think about it, but when you come across things that are on that list, or when you simply know you're on the right path, when you're on the right hunting trail to get to one of those items, you just kind of know it. That's the beauty of your subconscious. So embed that embed that scavenger hunt list into your subconscious and you'll just start finding things. You will. You'll start finding things. And that's the joy of being a scavenger is when you're not looking for something, you simply find it. You simply find things. And that to me is the real joy of being a scavenger. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free. So take.